Helping Widows Create New Lives After Loss, with Debbie Weiss, the author of Available As Is, A Midlife Widow's Search for Love, on episode number 268 of the Beyond Adversity podcast with Dr. Brad Miller. It wasn't anything specific. Um, I think what happened is I started to focus on health. I started to take yoga classes. I went for walks. But again, I was still pretty isolated, and I realized I just had to get out of the house and meet some people. So I started to join some groups, and that got me out of the house into in, in normal person clothes, not sweatpants all the time, <laughs> and interacting with people. And that happened fairly soon, a couple months after he passed, and I also got grief therapy, which was very good. Welcome to the Beyond Adversity podcast with Dr. Brad Miller, the show dedicated to helping you crush adversity and succeed in life. Brad believes you deserve a life that is fulfilling and impactful. And this show is designed to help you navigate beyond adversity and achieve your life of peace, prosperity, and purpose. Now, here's Dr. Brad. And hello, good people. Welcome to Beyond Adversity with Dr. Brad Miller the podcast where we help you to grow through what you go through, navigating adversity in your life to achieve your life of peace and prosperity and purpose. Head on on over to drbradmiller.com for over 260 episodes of this podcast designed to help you. A little hiatus over Easter time. For those of you keeping up with our catalog of podcast episodes, I had a little adversity of my own dealing with some cancer surgery. and had to take a little break there, but it's glad to be back with you, coming to you from the Loft Studios just outside of Indianapolis, Indiana. I'm looking to pour into your life from my 42 years of experience as a pastor and my doctoral degree in transformational leadership and a lot of time spent with people who are hurting in one form or another and helping helping them to to uh, transform to a promised life of peace and prosperity and purpose. One of the things that my recent cancer illness came to my mind was understanding how it impacts other people in their lives. Our guest today, Debbie Weiss, had the impact of having her husband die of cancer. She became a widow, young in life. And the story we have here today is her story of what she did about it, how it impacted her life, and how she can help you to rebuild your life. It became very real to me recently about what would happen to my wife if he helps us to navigate this a little bit, and perhaps is the case in your life. She uh, is a former attorney who's now turned to creative writing to as an outlet for her her life, and she married her high school sweetheart. Tell his name is uh, George. She's going to tell us her story about George and how he uh, came with came down with cancer, and how that just turned her whole world upside down. And she had to create a new life. This is a pertinent thing to a lot of folks here, and to uh, overcome her loneliness, to deal with things in a more healthy way than some of the ways that she had been dealing with them. And so she, uh, among other things, wrote the book. Available as is, a midlife widow's search for love as a part of way of recovering from her loss and offering something to you. If you're in this position, know someone who's had cancer or widowed from cancer, this is the book, this is the guest for you to tune into today here on Beyond Adversity. He's here to address 
your questions. You're going to get a lot out of it. When we come back from the other side of the interview, we're going to talk about a few takeaway points that I want you to be aware of as well. She blogs at uh, com. That's D-E-B-B-I-E-W-E-I-S-S-A-U-T-H-O-R.com. Her name is Debbie Weiss. She's our author, guest today. Let's get into our conversation right now. Our guest today is Debbie Weiss, and she is the author of Available As Is, A Midlife Widow's Search for Love, and she's going to share her story, which is going to be helpful to many of you. Debbie, welcome to Beyond Adversity. Thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it. It's an honor and a privilege, and thank you for sharing your story, which has some painful parts, and it has some helpful parts and some uplifting parts to your story and to your book. And uh, the title is available as is, A Midlife Widow's Search for Love, which gives us a clue, but there's a deeper, deep story there. Can you just share with us a bit of your story to give us a context for our conversation? Sure. Let's see. I lost my mother when I was 10, and that was in 1973. I lived in a small suburban town here in Northern California. And I went on to lead a pleasant life. I went to law school and I married my high school sweetheart named George. And we were together for 32 years until he died from cancer in April of 2013. When he died, I was almost 50. I'd never lived on my own before. And I was pretty devastated. A complete uh, change of circumstances for you after, and you said you were high school sweethearts. So really, I'm assuming that was the main love of your life through your whole early part of your adult life. Is that a fair assess- assessment? That's correct. He was my one and only. I'd known him since I was seven. Our parents worked together. We started dating my senior year in high school. He was my prom date. So he was it. Yeah. And cancer took him, and I'm sure there was some just tragic and ugly and heart-wrenching moments in that in and of itself. And how'd you get through that? Or did you get through that? Or what was your story there? It was worse than it might have been because he got in denial over his illness. He somehow, he he was a software developer and a very powerful person. And when he was diagnosed, he tried to save me from all the medical aspects. He was getting his chemo at the same hospital where my mother had passed also from an illness. And he just kept doing everything himself. He was working straight through. And somehow I feel like that messed with his mind a little bit because he started to think he was recovering even as he was getting better. You know, he was diagnosed in 2009. We had a few good years. Uh, Mid-2013, he started to decline, but he also started to think he was recovering. So he left his parents out of his treatment. He didn't he thought he was getting better, and that, that left me pretty messed up because we didn't have a real goodbye, and caregiving was so difficult because he was turning down services and things that would have helped and not understanding what was really happening to him. Which, in turn, was not helpful to you, I assume, in terms of how you processed the grief and the loss and some confusion, I'm sure. Is that a fair way of looking at what you were experiencing? That's very true. Yeah, it was very hard. I had a lot of guilt as his caregiver because since he wasn't accepting help, I was doing everything. And I, I'm not a trained medical person. I'm a lawyer. I worried I was making it worse. I didn't really know everything that was happening, although I had a pretty good idea. And sometimes I was angry. I was a very flawed caregiver. 
So when he died, I felt bad. I felt very guilty that maybe I had contributed to a poor end to his life. And if he's in denial and if he's angry, that sometimes you can have some of the same feelings as well going through that process. And the reason why I say all this, Debbie, is because, you know, sometimes the recovery that we have is really integrated in how the person we lose, how they're, how they transition, how they handle it. And yeah, not so well. <laughs> let's talk about how you did handle it initially. You say you handled it not so well. What were some of the things that you feel like you did not so well, which may help set the stage for what you begin to turn that around? What were some of the ways you coped with it? His name was George. George and I had a pretty isolated lives. We weren't very social. I'd quit practicing law on around 10 years before maybe. So I didn't have a work outlet. We didn't have kids, no kids. So when he was gone, I was pretty isolated. And I did very well with the administrative stuff, but I was very lonely. So at night I'd queue up something to binge watch, get a couple of Manhattans. I was drinking a lot in the evenings and be just very sad and isolated. And I had to get out of that situation. What withdrawing is... Unfortunately, pretty common when people have yeah. this sit situation and sometimes it can lead to, I believe a lot of people get duck when they have a adversity hit and they, in order to get unstuck, you have to be very proactive about it. And so you're in this situation where you've lost your husband there, you had some isolation in and of your relationship itself, and then you were isolated just Watching TV and drinking is what I'm understanding you to say there. You took care of the the paperwork, but relationship-wise, you were in a bad place. But you're not there now. So what were some of the – we talked about what you did that kind of was just a little bit destructive. So let's talk for a minute here, Debbie, about what you started to do. Was there a turning point where you said, okay, enough's enough? Did you, I don't see some TV show or did something happen, some turning point? You say, I can't do this any longer? It wasn't anything specific. Um, I think what happened is I started to focus on health. I started to take yoga classes. I went for walks. But again, I was still pretty isolated. And I realized I just had to get out of the house and meet some people. So I started to join some groups. And that got me out of the house into, in, in normal person clothes, not sweatpants all the time, <laughs> and interacting with people. And that happened fairly soon, a couple months after he passed. And I also got grief therapy, which was very good. So a couple things there. You got therapy and you got out to be with mm -hmm. other groups. Were these like support group type of things or just fun groups? Or you mentioned yoga, for instance. What type of groups were these? Random. I was in a suburban small town. For example, I had my late husband's sports car, George's car. And I thought I might sell it, but I called the car group that deals with these cars and they were super friendly. So I started to go to like their monthly dinner. And every Saturday morning, we drive through town and have the 7.30 a.m. breakfast. And it doesn't sound like much, but it was people and it was friendly. And I was out of the house and then there'd be some activity car related, which isn't really my interest, but the people were great. And from there, I joined some walking groups, some groups that did some walking a little later. Rotary Club in my town was nice. I joined my local synagogue and got grief counseling with the rabbi. And from there were some women's groups within the synagogue. 
which again were really lovely, welcoming people. So you found yourself starting to belong to something beyond your prior experience, and the people relationships made a big difference, didn't it? They did. They made a huge difference. The other thing I did that was super helpful is I'd always enjoyed writing, but I hadn't taken it seriously. And before George got really sick, I was doing a weekly adult education writing class at our local adult education center. And I resumed that. And that was really huge for me because it met Thursday afternoons. And from there was a lovely group of writers, a few of the older folks, and they did a writing group on Friday mornings. So from there, I had deadlines. I'm a lawyer. I love deadlines. I wanted to get my two pieces of writing in a week, darn it. I was going to take Was that kind of part of the expectation of the group that you had a couple of pieces of writing a week, something like that? We didn't always, but we tried. We tried to have stuff in for class and we tried to have something in for the group because that's why we're all meeting to, to share each other's writing and get feedback. And at that point, most of those folks were writing books. I wasn't at that point, but they were. So now I had purpose and I had things to do. And two days a week, I had wonderful people to be with. And that, that really helped. It also sounds like there's a little bit of level of accountability or at least some appropriate peer pressure to provide, to participate in the process here. Very much. Oh, yes. You don't have to have something when you go to class. You just have to be pleasant and offer constructive feedback. But I wanted to take advantage of the class time and also the writing group time. They were very welcoming. And my friend who leads the group, Will, we're buddies today. He's written like 11 books. He was very big on accountability. This is your time. This is what the group is doing. This is I'm sure they gave why you wouldn't some, you be writing? I'm sure they gave you some structure and some coaching on and various methodologies and approaches to it as well. And also, I know lawyers a little bit. I'm uh, married to a legal assistant and been around a lot of lawyers. And you folks like to get it done, don't you? <laughs> if you got yeah. if you got an assignment mentality, you're after it. You're and it gives you that task orientation that that you thrive on. Am I correct? You're absolutely right. No, you're correct because if you had seen me during the days right after my husband passed, I was doing all the stuff you needed to do with the estate and the trust and the. Oh, it's painful. I only had all those death certificates, but all that stuff I did, life insurance, all kinds of stuff. The house was in disarray because of deferred maintenance of someone with cancer. I got a lot of stuff done, a lot of everything cleaned up. But at night I was a mess. So I was like two people. I was like this highly functioning person during the day. In fact, the, he worked at Intuit, which is a financial software company. And they gave me a liaison who I worked with. And the guy said, I think it was a compliment. He said, and if why he said if I died young, I'd want my wife to hire you because you're so tenacious to get everything taken care of. So I seem pretty highly functioning from the outside. Yeah, you've got that mentality. You've got that punch list type of thing. Boom, boom, get it done. You're right. And it's kind of like you've, I'm sure you've heard the term right brain, left brain. The, the left brain is that highly functioning part, and the right brain is the part that's more relationship oriented. I could have them backwards, but you get the basic idea. We have parts of our brain that functions those ways, and most people are more functioning in one area or the other. And that's what you did. But we need both. We need both to be a healthy, functioning person. But what I understand what you're saying there is that you got stuff done, but you had this other need. And I'm interested to just share with you that I'm a retired pastor. So I've had a lot of funerals and a lot of dealing with people going through going through grief and death situations. And you you may be aware of this, but a lot of people don't handle that kind of stuff you talked about very well. And they have stress mm -hmm. on the other side of things where they don't have mm -hmm. all the details cared for. But uh, it works uh, works both ways. Action is a real big thing here, Debbie. And uh, I think you 
you've mentioned several things you took action about. You took care of the punch list. You got involved with some groups. You got therapy, you mentioned. That was a helpful thing. You got involved with some groups in your synagogue and some things like like that. If you're going to give advice to another widow who was early in the journey, what would you say would be one, of the two, one or two things to say, okay, in order to get out of whatever your slump is, this is what you need. This is what I would advise you to do. The first thing I would say is to be very gentle with yourself. I was really hard on myself and I was like, why aren't I smarter? Why aren't I getting more done? Why am I so unhappy? I was felt very guilty. Again, I told you about the circumstances of my husband's death. So I would say the first thing is to be very gentle with yourself. I think we make it a whole layer of additional pain and difficulty when we judge ourselves in extraordinary circumstances. So the first thing I would say is to be kind to yourself. And then the second thing I would say probably is just at a very low key way to start to do a few things that bring you some joy and see if you can do them with other people. That's taking some positive steps and not guilt and blame and all all the emotions that we can have all get wrapped up into this kind of thing. And and there's also the element of that which is beyond ourselves. What I mean by that is the inner life or some spiritual realm or whatever. Some people lash out at God or think this is so unfair on some metaphysical level. Yeah. How? Tell me if this is a part of your experience at all about dealing with the spiritual realm or angry with God or anything along this line. Was this a part of your journey in dealing with your husband's death at all? I'm not a religious person. I've been um, I've had a pretty contentious relationship with the idea of a higher power since my mom died when I was 10. Okay. I figured for a 10 year old, why is mommy sick and dying? That, that didn't mm. seem a, that didn't seem like a well-ordered universe to me yeah. when my husband died and I was 50 and it was like, this is happening again. The person yeah. I love the most right. in my life, this is happening again. So I was very angry yeah. and I really believed that we lived in a pretty hostile universe and it just took a while for me to see good and positive things. And from there to go to a place of not being angry. And I wouldn't say gratitude. I think that's really overused, especially when people are in pain. But to see that my circumstances weren't extraordinary, a lot of people go through things like this and far worse. And that I was lucky to have resources. I didn't lose my house. My husband had life insurance. I was going to be okay. I had a wonderful, loving dad and stepmom. I felt I had to tell myself I had all the pieces to create a better life. That was up to me. Yeah. Part of, you know, part of what I was getting at, as you mentioned that a little bit about having some of that struggle, I think almost everybody has some sort of inner life struggle. You got to come to terms with it one way or another, or you can dissolve into some real bitterness. And yeah. I think that's the part of the danger for some folks is to dissolve into, I call it the malaise of mediocrity, where you just get stuck. You just get stuck and can't function. And some people think it's a God thing. And some people think it's just they, the world is against me. And you decided to do something about it. And that's that's awesome by taking some action and some things like that. So let's begin to talk here, Debbie, about some of the actual things that 
you did step by step process. We talked about some of the actions you took to break out of it, but I'm talking about now some of the things that maybe you have in your book and other things where you're finding how you put your life in order. You began to build your new life and you eventually started dating again and some other things. What were some of the processes, some of the steps that you took to put your life together where you have some, you know, where you're at now? I started with very basic things like making the house my own. My late husband was the engineer, so we had wires from unfinished projects everywhere. He was both a perfectionist and a do-it-yourselfer. So the first thing, I had to make my house feel like my home. And then I could at least focus on fitness a little bit. I would walk and I'd go outside and you'd see all these nice smiling people walking the dogs and it was spring and there's cherry blossoms or whatever. And that was lovely. Let's go back to make your house your home for a second. What were some of the specific things that you did? Did you take down pictures and put up different ones? Did you tear out walls? What'd you do? I wasn't as dramatic to tear down walls. Um, What I did do was I looked at things that we'd never managed to repair while he was alive and also just the things that needed work. For example, the primary bathroom was leaking into the dining room. I oh. had no choice on that. Yay. <laughs> so I had to yeah, I get was it remodeling done. the bathroom. Yeah, I got a contractor. I was going to the tile store, <laughs> the loving store. I got rid of a bunch of things. You know, George was four years older than I was, and he made all the decisions. So this was a chance for me to do things like take down all the stuff that he liked that I didn't and get rid of all his unfinished projects and replace them with easy things that a technological idiot like me could use so that the family room was actually someplace I could watch television instead of just (laughs) look at it and not understand what this network thing was all about. Okay. All right. I also like the finances. I did stuff like get everything in my name and put things with my financial advisor. So I had an idea where I was because I didn't. He had everything. Everything. For a while, I was using the computer as him. I'll, I'm always pretty grateful oh, okay. to the woman at Wells Fargo who was, I remember her nine months pregnant with a nose ring who helped me put everything in my <laughs> name and gave me a big hug with pregnant and yeah. okay, I can help you. So well, just awesome. things like getting a sense of specifics and, yeah. my, and then from there, venturing outside the door and, and mm. going for a walk reinventing yourself. And it sometimes starts with that physical space. Some people, as you probably know, when they lose a spouse, just can't stay in the same space. They have to move. They move, do some major remodel or something like that. Well, your book is available as is. And A Midlife Widow's Search for Love. What do you mean by available as is? The book picks up, starts when I started to date, which I did 14 months after my loss. Okay. And I picked available as is because us older singles are like real estate. We're like this really great old house. We're available <laughs> as is. There's, oh my goodness. You know, okay. Yeah. All we right. got some creaky floors. We have some built-ins that aren't coming out. Right. But that was what I was talking about was entering the dating stage. Wow. As a finished product. Yeah. Also, if I'm understanding, you really... Your dating was with your husband growing up, right? You just didn't really yes. have, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you didn't have ex- a lot of experience dating other people, even as a teenager. Not at all. And, oh, no, I uh, was a geek. No, I didn't. So you had to learn a lot of lessons quickly at a, at a different stage than 18 and that kind of thing. So, Yeah, what, very much. What did you learn? Oh, let's see. I learned that. A lot of middle-aged dating, at least to me, is very hostile, and it's very unpleasant. 
most of the men I met were really disillusioned. Most of uh, were divorced, not widowed. And they were angry with their exes and angry with their failed relationships. And they were discouraged with the whole thing. And I found that pretty disheartening because I was a widow when I was looking to find joy again. And I felt if I can be go through what I've been through and be optimistic, why can't they, you know? And people weren't invested because they felt so disillusioned and discouraged, which I see. Divorce is painful. Maybe there's animosity, obviously. In my case, I would have still been married had my husband not died. I loved him dearly. Divorce, you lose your finances, people, community property or whatever. It's a mess. Yeah, it's a mess. So I could, but, but what I really saw was that a lot of guys were divorced. And I'll add another nasty thing in, which is our current hookup culture. When I was younger, and you dated, I was 17, the boy comes over and he's wearing probably a sweater. His mom checks out his collar. He takes right. you to a nice thing and drives you home and he makes sure you're home safe. Had to, God forbid he had to meet my dad, who's pretty intimidating. Uh, but, um, okay. Whereas now, these guys would be like, oh, yeah, do you want to come over in a hot tub? Like, no. (laughs) Beating someone to a cup of coffee was apparently a difficulty. And I bitched about, complained a lot about exes and problems. And it was like, okay, I'm trying to find a little joy here. So a lot of bitterness, a lot of temporal stuff, you know, surface level kind of a thing I'm to pick it up on here that wasn't for you. It wasn't for what you were looking for. No, it wasn't. I tried dating a bit and tried to just take things casually, but that wasn't me. And I really found a lot of sexism in our generation. I think this is my big theory, is it comes down to the way folks of our generation were raised. Little girls, I was like the last generation of girls who had to wear dresses in the first grade. And we were raised to be polite and pleasant. And then the media always is big on being attractive to men, which is also connected to youth in our media. And the little boy, the boys were raised, oh, boys will be boys. There they are on the right. playground. I grew up in the 80s, so that's Gordon Gecko. Greed is good, masters oh, of the yeah. universe. Right. So you have these guys who are being pushy and women who were taught to be empathetic and kind. And actually, I found being a lawyer extremely helpful dating because you had to be pretty darn strong and stand up for yourself, as in most matters in life. Yeah. It sounds like you learned these lessons and now you're sharing them with other people. So who's this book for? Is it for women in your similar position primarily? Is that the, the target audience? It is. It's for women who find themselves alone at middle age, either through divorce or widowhood, and who need to find their voice and find themselves and create a life for themselves. It's specifically aimed for cautious people because I'm cautious. After my mom died, I learned people can vanish. So it's not your eat, it can be, but it's not for your person who needs to take steps forward, but might not be your eat, pray, love person who runs off to an ashram or sells their house and tours the world. I also feel though, and I've spoken to a few men that my book would be beneficial to men because I I think a lot of, I think middle-aged single guys, especially like women who've been in long marriages, maybe could use a woman's perspective on some of this. I think it would be helpful. So what I'm hearing you say is that there's a there's lessons to be learned on both sides of the matter. 
a fairy tale in a sense for women to wake up. It's not just like it used to be. You've got to be smart. You've got to be aware. You've got to be alert. You've got to understand the expectations are different than what I may have had. And for the guys, perhaps it has to do with uh, take the risk to go a little deeper. Am I anywhere near close to what you were after here? Yes. Yeah, you're pretty close. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you are. Exactly. Yeah. For me, I talk about finding a voice after being in an all-encompassing marriage. So for women, I think, and men, it's the sense of creating a new self as a single person on your own, which is probably a first step when you've lost someone you've been with a long time, is you have to find yourself as a person, and then you can from there go to try to blend your life with someone else's. And for men, I also really just, I'm going to sound ridiculously old-fashioned, courtesy is helpful. Kindness is helpful. So politeness politeness still counts, huh? To me, it sure as heck does. Yes, very much. And so is being kind and compassionate. Trying to push some woman to do something you want isn't a victory. It, it's a flaw. Especially you sound like you're responding to a conquest culture, a, a culture of, of one-upmanship. One is above the other this time. Very of much. Yeah. There is a place of hope and of fulfillment beyond this wilderness experience of the death of your husband and the dating world and trying to reinvent yourself. You did find your way through this. Yeah to have some sense of fulfillment in, in, in your life. And that's good news. And what I'm saying is because so many people, as my experience, when they get in this adverse life events and they stay stuck or they don't, can't see the end of it, oh. can't see that there is some hope, there is some way to get through this. And you've talked about this. Tell me about any person that you have encountered that you either your book has touched or maybe your own, maybe a kind of a counseling or just friend that you've talked to who've been able to take your concepts that you've, that you share in your book and it's been helpful to them. Is there persons in your life who have responded to you said, okay, this is helpful? Yes, they have been. They're usually virtual friends. I found a lot of my author page on Facebook. I've gotten comments from people who've been helped. One woman, there's a, a part of the book where I wind up going to Paris with George's in-laws and start to awaken to the possibility of travel in a different kind of life. And one woman wrote on Facebook that she read my book and she was encouraged to take her daughter to Paris. She's a widow. I did a recent podcast and a woman said that she'd given up on dating, but she's her t time frame of loss, losing her husband was quite similar to mine. And she put some really great notes that she felt not alone. My, I have some Amazon reviews to that effect. I've heard from widows who've said they feel a lot less alone when they read this. And in my yoga classes, I've had some lovely women who've been buying this book for their moms because their because their dads are ill. That's a that's very affirming. That's it's great. It makes you feel good when people respond, doesn't it? Yeah. You, have it. you feel like so you're doing some, something purposeful. Debbie, how can, if there's somebody listening to us now and who's going through something similar, or maybe know someone who has, how can they find out more about you, your website or your book? How can people find out more about what you're about? Easiest thing is probably my website. It's Debbie Weiss Author. It used to be The Hungover Widow when I was first widowed, so you can see I changed. But now it's Debbie Weiss Author. I've changed it. My Facebook page is Debbie Weiss Author. I believe it's the same on Instagram. I'm hard to avoid if you Google Debbie Weiss Writer because I've had some stuff published and I've done some podcasts. My webpage is the best place. I want my book available as is on Amazon. And I answer comments. If people write to me. I send out newsletters. And if someone says they're in pain or something, I honestly answer people. I do. 
We'll put links to that at our website, drbradmiller.com, debbieweissauthor.com. I just would share with you that I, for whatever reason, I know a fair number of women who have somewhat similar circumstances or in a couple of cases, the opposite. I have at least one good friend who's my age who lost his wife and going through some somewhat similar things from the other perspective. But I just think there's a real need for this. I, part of what I'm getting at here with you, Debbie, is the need for direction. So many people are just, just floating around. What do I do? I agree. And the experiences of other people help, but also if you're able to kind of outline, okay, here's what I did and here's some point-by-point processes, that may be helpful. What you're trying to do, as I see it, is be helpful. Is that, that fair? That is fair. Yes. I, yeah, I, it is. Yes. This book is not, yeah, this book is designed, I, it's a memoir, so it is not a self-help book, but I do try to go through the lessons that I've learned and what I got out of these experiences and to make people feel less lonely. And yes, I want. I was hoping the book would help fellow widows who felt very isolated. That's when I started writing and blogging, and which ultimately turned into my going back to school and getting a master's degree in writing. I think you can start to take something you love to do and start to make it into something that might bring connection and purpose. Apparently, this has been a good thing for you in terms of this because you only have written the book. I understand you've had pieces in Huffington Post, Women's Day, Good Housekeeping, and Reader's Digest, and those are all wonderful publications, and you're making a contribution. And the way I like to put it is that what gives us value in life is when we are able to serve others with love and contribute to the greater good. And you're doing that. So thank you. thank you for doing just that. Our guest today, Debbie Weiss, her, her, her website, DebbieWeissAuthor.com, and her book is available, as is A Midlife Widow's Search for Love. Debbie, thank you for being our guest today on Beyond Adversity. Thanks so much to Debbie Weiss for being our author guest to here today on Beyond Adversity. The book is available as is at Midlife Widow's Search for Love. You can find her at DebbieWeissAuthor.com. And we have uh, links in our show notes at DrBradMiller.com. Just a couple of uh, takeaway points about our conversation here today. It struck me because she dealt with the loss of her husband after cancer. And I'm dealing with the aftermath of a cancer surgery, pretty serious, and made me think about what my wife would do if she, if I was no longer around. You deal with loneliness and deal with the situations at hand. Debbie talked about how she dealt with it in some sometimes unhealthy ways, but eventually turning to some uh, pertinent points that I wanted to share with you, just reiterate with you. She talked about getting into grief therapy groups, helpful to her, to get in with other groups, uh, other groups of uh, other uh, uh, interests that she had, a sports car group being helpful, for instance. And then she took up writing as a way to channel her herself and to give her a sense of purpose and direction in life. And her one of her pieces of advice for new widows is just to Kind of give yourself a break. <laughs> Take a moment of a peace there. And I think helpful advice for you. Helpful advice. That's what we're all about here at Beyond Adversity with Dr. Brad Miller. And I just love to be helpful to you. I invite you to head over to drbradmiller.com where I have over 260 episodes of my teaching and of uh, interviews with other folks, authors and folks who have helped people to navigate adversity and achieve their life of peace and prosperity and purpose. That's why we exist. So I hope that you'll head on over to drbradmiller.com. 
www.thinkandgrowthpodcast.com and see how we can be helpful to you and maybe sign up on our mailing list, which you can do so at drbradmiller.com slash 40 day way. We look forward to serving you. Until next time, friends, this is Dr. Brad Miller encouraging you to always do all the good that you can. Thank you for listening to the Beyond Adversity podcast with Dr. Brad Miller. You can find a complete archive of all episodes at drbradmiller.com. That's drbradmiller.com. Or subscribe for free through Apple Podcasts and never miss an episode. Each week, we bring you a message to crush adversity and live your life of peace, prosperity, and purpose.